Good morning, FBC. It is so good to be with you this morning. Um, my name is Pastor Kyle. I will be leading us today in a sermon on John 15. And it's my pleasure to just continue to be able to do this, specifically in this time of quarantine where a lot of things seem to be shut down, but by the grace of God, we are able to do this all online. So thank you so much for allowing me to be up here and to share with you what I think God is trying to say to some of our people. And uh, he's really spoken to me through this text. So I ask that you just partner with us and pay attention and, and love the Word of God that's going to hopefully bring so much life to us. Um, if you would please just join me briefly for a word of prayer as we get ready. Just kind of center ourselves. Father, we thank you so much that you are here, that you are with us no matter distance and time and space, that you are beyond all that. And you are happy to see your children worship and children come around your word to learn about who you are and what you've called us to do in this world. So thank you so much for your son Jesus and uh, give us the eyes to see and ears to hear what you have for us today. In your son's name, amen. All right. Well, as, as some of you know, the last time I was up here during quarantine, uh, I shared a little bit about how my wife and I have been doing a garden project. And it is mostly Ruthie's project, um, but I've been out there, you know, watering every once in a while, picking some, some tomatoes and helping get the cucumbers all situated. So I feel like it's kind of our project at this point. And so the garden is kind of on its last legs. We had enormous growth. The, the plants that we planted mutated to the, to the nth degree. Um, we had tomatoes invading cucumbers and, and zucchinis invading tomatoes, and it was like a whole jungle in there. So we definitely got what we paid for. We got more than we wanted, and um, that was really cool. We learned a lot, actually, about who God is as a gardener, as he tends the earth. We, we personally learned how, how intentional gardening is and how God is doing that with everyone at all times, and, and even, obviously, much more intentionality there. But the lessons that we learned, we often had to make a mistake to understand. So we learned a bunch, and we're going to plant, you know, winter and fall fruits and, and vegetables soon. But man, did we learn through our mistakes. And I'm going to walk us through some of how those mistakes um, translate to this passage, because this passage, again, is kind of a pastoral passage, which means nature-esque and, and um, like farming and, and, and then like rolling hills. And so this passage is talking about Jesus as the vine and we are the branches. And so it's a clear kind of gardening um, issue. So um, let's begin. One thing that we did as gardeners is we learned by our mistakes. And honestly, that's how most humans learn. Um, the really wise ones, like my brother, learn by the mistakes of others, so he doesn't have to replicate what I did. But most of us learn by making mistakes and being corrected. And so in Jesus' ministry with his disciples, he was a, a really good teacher. And he let his disciples learn in progressive stages. He gave them bits and pieces as they got deeper in knowledge of who he is and who God is and who God was preparing them to be. But often they made mistakes. And the beautiful thing about our Savior is he didn't leave them in the, in the lurch, so to speak. He was there with them. He would come alongside their mistake and teach them and honestly use that as a teaching moment to, to reveal more about who he was or who he is. And so this passage in John 15 is a way for him to do the same thing. He's revealing more about who he is, and there's challenges in there that a lot of his disciples weren't able to, to meet at that point. They were going to fail, actually, a lot before they started succeeding um, after the Spirit came. But it's an important part of their spiritual education in John 15 because it's 
one, the, the last I am statement of Jesus. Jesus has seven I am statements in John about who he is, and, and the I am language reflects Old Testament I am statements that God gave to the Israelites. So it's kind of a big deal for Jesus to be like, I am X, Y, Z, because he's saying, I am the Lord, and this is who I am. But this is the last statement in John, and it is a key moment in Jesus' life that is, it's an interesting I am statement, and we're going to look at that a little bit. Um, but I will caution you, some of these teachings, some of these moments in John 15 will be hard for you, and as it was very hard for me, I was stretched, I was challenged, and I'm hoping that this is what the Spirit wants us to do today, is for you to feel a little uncomfortable so that we can grow forward and not stagnate in our faith. All right, let's jump on in. If you have your Bibles open to John 15, we'll be doing verses 1 through 17, but we're going to take it in bite-sized chunks, and it'll be up on your screen if you need it. So John 15, 1 through 4 says, I am the vine, and the Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes, so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself and must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. So, simple intro. It's about vines. It's about remaining. (laughs) It seems like a tightly little written chunk. And we're going to break that down because, like I said before, this is the last of Jesus' I am statements. It's a revelation of who he is, and what he's come to do, right? And this is the last one. So let's list off some of the first six. So he's the bread of life. He, was, he called himself the light of the world. He's the door of the sheep. He's the resurrection and the life. He's the good shepherd. He's the way, the truth, and the life. And then finally he says, I am the vine, and you are the branches. It's interesting, though, because this one has direct implications into the daily and eternal lives of his disciples. The other I am statements are reactions against what's going on around him. So he reacts either to the Pharisees or to a question by his disciples. And it's not as much a teaching moment as it is a statement, an explanation of that statement of who Jesus is. But here he ties it in to the lives of the listeners. He actually says, I am the vine and you are the branches. He, He binds together the I am statement with the listener. And it's a personal discourse that the disciples are now going to digest. And the first thing he wants to show his disciples here in verses 1 through 4 is that their lives and their spiritual standing is completely dependent, not upon them being good people or their hard works, but upon him feeding them his eternal life. There's no qualifications to this. Like one day, like we could be self-sufficient, right? Or grow up on our own or like develop eternal life on our own through our good works and even he'll kickstart us, but we'll take it the rest of the way, Jesus. No, it's I'm the vine, I will give you life and you're the branches that, will, that are grafted to me. And that's it, that's, that's the statement that there's no, there's no way around the fact that I'm the one that'll give you life. I'm the one that will pour eternal life into you. And it's hard because sometimes the Christian spirit understands that, but then we don't live it. Let's briefly read James 1.17. It says, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. 
So God is blessing all people at all times. He's giving gifts. He's giving life. He's giving breath. He's giving wealth, empowering success. He is pouring that out. He doesn't change in his distribution of that. He's pouring it out. But what happens to us when we receive that is we use these things and we have to remember that we didn't earn them or that we didn't own them or that we didn't make them what they are. God has blessed us and we as people often have a hard time translating that into our lives. We can still say, I get it, I get it. But then we live as if they're our own hard works or our own good labors. And, and it is a foolish thing to say. Maybe this, this will help you understand a little bit more. How foolish would it be for a branch to claim fruitfulness and say, I earned this and did this on my own when it was receiving sap from the vine, nutrients, support on the stem, and shelter from the storm. The branch is only giving, bearing fruit because of the, the work of the vine. And the branch to claim anything otherwise is foolishness. It's pointless to say, oh, I did this on my own. So why do we do that? Why do we take the blessings of God and we look at our, our cars and our houses and our successes and say, I worked hard for that. Yeah, you did, but also remember, you worked hard because God allowed you to work hard. God poured the ability to be a successful person into you. You didn't fabricate that on your own. And for some of us, that's hard to, to stomach, right? But Jesus continues with this idea. He says, and I, I encourage you to read again um, in verse 4, Remain in me as I also remain in you. This is a key point. The disciples had moments of weaknesses and failures. You see that throughout the gospel stories. And they had nothing to do with Jesus, right? Their failures weren't because Jesus failed them. No, often it was because they failed themselves or they were not able to understand or they were ignorant or sometimes they were just victims of circumstance. But the point is, God didn't fail them. They failed themselves or they failed God or the world failed them. And again, that, that can be kind of hard to stomach for some of us. Sometimes it feels like God is purposely taking out either vengeance on us or, or he's, I've heard this said, like, why is God doing this to me? And it's not because the vine has disconnected from the branches. The branches have, by either circumstance or by themselves, disconnected themselves from the vine. If you understand this as a Christian, you realize when Jesus leaves the earth, he, he sends the Spirit, and the Spirit dwells with us for eternity and dwells in us now. And so even when we feel alone, we're not alone. That's it's one of the beautiful things about the gospel is we learn that we're not alone. And sometimes that's scary. Oh, man, all the bad things I've ever done, God sees us. Yeah. But then all the good things that you experience and all the hardships that you experience, God is there with you. So remember that if you feel a lack of growth in your life or maybe there's like a stunted season that you're in, don't just attribute that to God. It can be a lot of different things. Circumstances, sometimes it's sin in your heart. Sometimes it's just changes that are going on around you or suffering. But guess what? He is always with us. He is sustaining us. And Jesus is reminding his disciples that our place is not to be in the forefront claiming these things, but is to be interpreting our life through the lens of the vine. So if you're suffering, it's not just about why you're suffering, but it's how to succeed through the suffering with Jesus' help. If you're going through a change, it's not about why is everything changing and, and throwing a fit, but it's going, why are we changing and how can I adjust to meet 
that change with the help of Jesus. Or if it's a sin problem, repent. <laughs> Be like, I got myself into this mess. Jesus, help me out. You've promised to help me if I repent, so I'm repenting. Give me wisdom and give me the, the humility to admit I'm wrong and, and change what I can change. And then finally, we see in, in verses 2, he says, he, God cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. So it's not like a threat. A lot of people can take these kind of verses as a threat, but it's more of like a, think about it like a diagnosis, a medical diagnosis. So it's either remain in Christ through study and prayer and, and love and sacrifice and relationship, and you will live. And guess what? That's good. But then you will be pruned for more growth. You don't stop at a certain point. However, if you do not do these things, if you do not abide in Christ, there will be consequences that will arise from being disconnected from life eternal. It's not saying, oh, I'm going to cut you off because you're a bad branch. It's saying you're dying. You're going to kill yourself. And when you're a dead branch, you have to tear it off. A dead limb needs to be removed so that it won't spread the rotten decay throughout the surrounding limbs. So verse 1 through 4 has a lot there. And the point is Jesus is the one pouring his life into us. And we need to be the ones to receive that well, to understand our place in that. And to not get lost in the semantics of, well, this is me and this is my thing. No, it's God's thing and you are stewarding it well. Let's continue in that in, in John 15. 5 through 8 says, I am the vine and you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is, my father, this is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. I kind of titled this section in my notes The Ungrateful Branch because that's kind of at the heart of what we're going to see here is that there's something happening with the branch being ripped off or torn off or thrown into the flames. And, and historically, this has been kind of misread in my life that I've seen. And um, there are three, a couple of directions you can take these verses, and we're going to look at them really briefly. The first direction is that Jesus is talking to followers that are following him, but not necessarily his, his disciples. Um, and the branches that are being ripped off and thrown away are the ones being thrown into the flames of judgment. But honestly, in this section, we see that Jesus is talking to the, his remaining 11 disciples. At this point, Judas left in, in about John thirteen thirty, And so Jesus is having this come to Jesus moment with the rest of his disciples and he's giving them revelations about himself. So that's not really accurate. Jesus is talking to his true disciples and he's not, he's not going to be referencing, this is another way to take it, he's not just referencing this idea that Christians can lose their salvation. That's not in John. John doesn't believe that. John talks a lot about security of faith, so that can't be it. Well, maybe it's Jesus talking about um, you know, Christians who live selfish lives. That, I mean, they have their salvation, but they live selfish lives. And so when they die and go to, to, to the judgment scene, they escape the judgment as through a fire, singed naked, but they're still in heaven. Well, that's not really here either. I think what Jesus is talking about is think about Judas again. He's talking about people like Judas who heard the truth, who lived the truth in some ways, but they were not of Christ. And his end is his own punishment right? He disconnects from Jesus. He dismisses the eternal life of Christ, and he gets cast into a life of, of, of damnation. He, he kills himself. Judas is one of the saddest people in history because he understood Jesus to an extent and then ended up fleeing him 
and, and was not able to find him again. One way that I was able to understand this passage is we had a, a pretty interesting scenario. So one of the plants that we were growing in, in Ruthie's garden was an heirloom tomato plant. You know, those big, chunky, mutant-looking tomatoes with splits on them and multicolors, right? Well, our heirloom tomato plant was so fruitful that most of the branches that were growing had 10, <laughs> 8 huge heirloom tomatoes per little branch sprout. And it started tearing away from the actual vine, from the main vine. And um, we, we didn't know what to do. We didn't know that. It was like a storm or like a windy day, and we looked outside, and all the plants were kind of coming apart. All the heirloom tomatoes were falling off, and we kind of propped some back up, and some of the branches didn't look completely snapped. So we kind of were waiting. It's like, is there sap coming through? Are they going to keep ripening? They were all pretty big at that point, too. They were juicy looking. So we were like, well, we really want to eat these. Let's see if they ripen. But we allowed the tomatoes to stay on even though it looked like they were disconnected from the branch. And they started getting redder and redder. And we're like, oh, they're ripening. Until one day we came out and I put my finger on one and it went right through it. And it turned out that it had rotted all the way through. They weren't getting riper. They were appearing to be ripe, but they were really faking. They were not connected to the branch and therefore it was dying. And the vine was not able to support the life of those tomatoes. Judas was with Christ from the beginning in the same way. He was learning. He was connected enough. He was even able to do miracles in Mark uh, 13. Oh, wait, no. Yeah, Mark 6, sorry. Jesus sends out the disciples two by two, and they perform miracles. So Judas was one of those guys performing miracles in the name of Jesus, and yet at the end of his life, he was faking. He appeared to be alive, but really he was dead. Jesus says, a branch not abiding in him is thrown away and then it withers. That's key. When we took off those dying tomatoes, they still looked ripe. But as soon as we cut them off and put them in a bag, they started instantly rotting and withering. This happens a lot in Christian Christianity, in, in church leaders, prosperity gospel preachers, and a lot of people that are able to fake spiritual life. What happens is they live off this man-made or God-given blessing, either their church platform or whatever, and they grow and grow and grow, and they appear to be ripening, and they appear to be successful, and they, they flaunt that. They go, look, isn't this amazing? God's giving me more and more platform to work with. But at the end, that, that wave that they're riding, it's not made on who God is or what God has called them to do. A lot of them are selfish with it. They're not making disciples. They're just building their own empire. And almost every single time we see this, it may take decades, but it happens where they get cast off from Christ in a kind of a public or a private way. Maybe something in their private life comes out or they're proven to be a hypocrite. And all of a sudden they just start withering. And everyone starts going, they were never really of Christ. They don't really, they didn't really know him. This is what Jesus is talking about. This is what happens to the Pharisees of Jesus' time. They're saying, we serve God. We understand his will. And Jesus goes, well, I'm, I'm the, the perfection of that. So are you going to listen to me? And they say, no. In fact, we hate you so much, we're going to kill you. And what happens is they wither. That whole religious way of life, the temple and the pharisaical law, it crumbles to, to dust within 70 plus years after Jesus leaves earth. Let us not become whitewashed tombs like they are. Let us not deceive ourselves in such a way. 
And sometimes that's hard because if you've grown up in the church or maybe you've had a baptism experience when you were younger or you really do believe like Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior, you can, you can find out the answer to am I alive or am I faking it pretty easily. And we see this in the end of John 15, 1 through 17. We're going to read 9 through 17 and it kind of gives us the, the answer to the question, am I alive or am I faking? Am I, am I a, a, a half-rotten fruit on a dead branch? All right, let's read. John 15, 9 through 17. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends, if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants, because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends, for everything that I have learned from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command, love one another. I call this section the community of unity, and super corny, and Rufy was like, don't do that, but too bad. It's on the record now. This section is one of my favorite sections of Jesus' teaching in John. It's full of spiritual life hacks. He gives away so many answers to human condition, to the human condition and how God interacts with God and how God wants to interact with man. It's pretty cool. (laughs) And so we're going to break it down in little verse chunks. Verses 9 through 11, I call the love of Jesus comes from the Father, right? So it says, as the Father loved me, so I have loved you. And he starts transferring it. If you keep my commands, just as I have kept his commands, you will start having this joy that will be from me and and you will become complete. And I call this the community of unity. He shows them that he's in a unified, loving relationship with the Father in such a way that they're completely unified in their actions and deeds and thoughts and words. And he doesn't remain there. It's not just like, check me out. Check how perfect uh, my relationship with God is. No, he goes, I want you to join that relationship. I want to graft you in to that perfect community, that communion with with the, the God of the universe. I want you to be a part of that. And it says it results, that, that joining together results in a completion of joy in the life of the believer. He's pulling back the curtain and revealing what's going on in the, in the spiritual realm. And he's saying, I want to include you in this eternal, glorious life of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. This is the purpose of John. John is obsessed with life and death imagery. And he's saying, you gain everything by loving and coming to know Jesus. And you lose everything by rejecting that gift. And it's, if this is true, if what Jesus is saying, this is literally the best news in the entire universe, that one day, not just on earth, right, because you can experience this communion with God here in an imperfect way, right, with sin in the way, and we have, probably have bad radio connection when it comes to understanding what God wants for our life, but one day we will not just be in the presence of God, like kind of outside his house looking in. We're going to be invited to eat at the table with him and engage in the way he engages the world and engage in the way that he blesses the universe and pours out every aspect of good from his character, we're going to be a part of that. We're going to be there absorbing that and reflecting that back in praise and, and, and reflecting it to the world around us that 
this is the Lord Almighty and we are his hands and his feet and we love him more than anything in the universe because he is the best thing in the universe. And Jesus is saying, you can be a part of this if you abide in me and do what I do because I'm doing what he does. Amazing, amazing truth. Verses 12 through 14, kind of, I call the command of love, right? My command is this, love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for his friends. You are my friends if we do what I command. The antidote to being a dead branch that withers and is cast into the flames of judgment is self-sacrificial love. That's the antidote that Jesus is demonstrating through his very life and he's commanding us to follow in his footsteps. He's saying, this is how you reflect abiding in me. When you abide in me, you realize what I'm giving you and that is eternal life that is shown through self-sacrificial love. And once you take that in as, as a sap, you want to give that out as a fruit. It proves that when you, when you have self-sacrificial love shown through your actions and in your, in your demeanor and in the way you think and talk to people, it proves that you have eternal life blooming in your heart. And Jesus doesn't just say this and say, well, I'm telling you to do this, but I'm not willing to do it myself. No, he backs up the claim to do this thing. He's the command that he's saying, love one another. Well, he's shown that his entire life. He's demonstrated the sacrificial love of God. So he's, he's backed it up. He's not just preaching one thing like sometimes parents do like, well, do as I say, but not as I do. No, he's like, I'm showing you that I'm doing what I do. And you just copy me. You learn from that. I am not, I'm without deceit. I'm without guile. I am a true example of God's will on earth. And you need to copy me. He didn't need to do that. He could have just delegated it. He's God, right? He's God Almighty. He could have been like, no, I don't think you guys, uh, Get it. Go, go love one another. I'm not going to do that for you because you are below me. No, he, he comes down to the level of the lowest person on the planet and says, hey, I love you. Learn from me. Learn from what I'm doing to you right now. I'm showing you that I love you. I'm going to show that until the day that you die and when you rise again with me, you'll see that I still love you. Do that with me. Go out and love others. And so, yeah, 15 through 17 is kind of like transferring the responsibility from receiving to going. In 15, it says, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. He's, he's reiterating that point. You are now a friend. You are now bound to me in love in a way that no servant could be. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask in my name, the father will give you. This is my command, love each other. Wow. Jesus is taking his community, this community that he's binding to the Father, from a community within to a community to go out. Right? He's saying, now that you've started to glimpse and understand what it means to abide with me and God in perfect unity and to love one another so that your joy may be complete, go and self-sacrificially love those out there so they can know this too. Go and, and gra- have them graft themselves into me, the vine, because I want to give them eternal life too. I, want, I have way more life than you could ever give. I have life that I want to give to the entire universe, and they just, they haven't heard, they don't understand, so go help them understand what I'm doing here. Help them understand what I have just told you, which is the most amazing truth in the history of the world. Go and tell them so that they can come to me. Go and bear fruit so that everyone's like, where did you get that fruit? That's the best looking fruit I've ever seen in the market. That must be free-range organic 
non-GMO fruit. And they'll be like, yeah, I got that from Jesus. Hurry up, let's go over and get you some, right? But again, this God is king of kings. Jesus is king of kings. He breathes the universe atom by atom into existence. He, he sustains every breath that we take, every heartbeat of any, every animal Every inching along of a caterpillar, he's, he's giving everything life. This God Almighty has condescended down so that he can call a man friend. He can call a woman friend. That's, that's not his job. We're supposed to be groveling at his feet, weeping at our own sin, saying, we'll never be good enough for you. We could never approach your throne because we are sinful. We are ugly. We are disgusting. And he goes, I mean, you see yourself like that. But I see you as the most beautiful thing I've ever, I've ever created. I'm here to show that to you, not just from up there, but from right here in front of you. He would lift people's face. He would touch lepers. He would touch people with gross, pussy, filthy growths on their body. And they had probably had not been touched in decades. And he would touch them because he loved them. That is the way he sacrificially loved the world. He condescended himself, and we're going to talk a little bit more about that in a second, but the intentionality of Jesus through this, these few verses cannot be overstated. He does this not for his own benefit. He didn't come and go through the grind that he went through, the constant day-in, day-out suffering he went through for himself. He did that for the others around him, for the entire world. He is the most selfless person being to ever exist. And we can't just receive that gift selfishly, which is how a lot of us receive the gift of salvation. Um, if we receive Christ's gift as kind of a get-out-of-jail-free card, you're missing the entire point of why he came to earth. And this may be hard to hear. I'm, I'm going to say this humbly. This is my journey, too. I'm not just pointing at, at people behind the screen. I'm, I'm actually saying this is so hard for me to understand, too, because I'm an American Christian. But American Christians have really failed in this regard to understand not just the cost of what we've been given, but to, to like actually do something with it. So many times in American Christianity, it's preached that we just need to grab hold of justification. We just need to grab hold of the eternal life offered by Jesus. But when we do that, we squeeze the life out of it. We squeeze the life out of the promise and the gift because we're just holding on to it. It's like giving a kid a cupcake. You're like, hey, kid, here's a cupcake. And they go, oh, it's so beautiful. And they go, Bzzz. they crush it. And they go, mm, it's so beautiful. I love it so much. And you're like, you're supposed to eat it. They're like, nope, just going to hold it and Bzzz. squish it. I just love this cupcake. You're supposed to eat it, kid. Like, I appreciate that you really love the cupcake, but I gave that to you to do something with it. You're supposed to shove it in your mouth and taste how good it is. No, 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 I'm just going to hold it. It feels nice. It tastes better. Okay, whatever. That's kind of how we're dealing with this gift. The cross is not just given to give us individual life, to make us feel warm and cozy in our hearts. But it's, he was on the cross in public to change the world, the whole world. Yes, individual salvation is needed, Individual repentance and loving God in a, in a personal way, being intimate, abiding with him in a personal way is obviously important. He says, abide in me. Abide with me, Mr. Disciple. 
love with me. Like, have, have this relationship with me. But then, go. Church is not just, and I, I would actually say, is not for the churchgoer. Of course, we benefit by coming to church. Of course, I love seeing you guys on a Sunday morning post, I mean, with no COVID in the air. Of course, giving hugs and singing songs is encouraging. But if that's what church is, we are failing because that's not what church is meant to be. Church is meant to go and grab the world by its face and go, you're dying. You're dying out there. Without Jesus, you are dying. You're withering away. You're living a life of sin that is killing you and everyone else around you. Come to the cross and understand that not only can you get eternal life, but you can become a purposeful child of God now. You can have real direction. You can have true character because of Jesus. Often we just don't understand what it means to abide in Christ and emulate his love. He's not saying abide and hang out with me on the couch and play Xbox. And that's the point. It's just to have a buddy-buddy relationship with Jesus. He, he didn't do that. He didn't just hang out with his 12 disciples in Peter's house for three years and just talk theology with them and, you know, fish. He, he went everywhere. He showed them the entire world. He was like, guys, go. Go and do what I have showed you. Go and love like I have loved. If we change this, this, this call, this gift to be just for us, we are actually embracing a world of self, uh, worldview of self-gratification that twists the word of God to our benefit. We are no better than a prosperity preacher. We are no better than anybody who's saying, well, God, God came to save me and, and make me successful and me happy. And that's twisting scripture because that's not what scripture says. Of course God came to hang out with you. He came to give you life. He came to give you joy. But he also came to prune you. He also came to send you. It's a lot more to life than enjoying your Ferraris and enjoying your, your, your Tahoe getaways. Like that's, I'm speaking to me here. It's a lot more than, than what I want in life. It's about sacrifice. So let's figure out what that means for us. What are we going to do with that, that tension? How do we love sacrificially? Well, um, I'm going to tell you a story about my life. So, I grew up homeschooled, um, but I was also a very good student. had a lot of good grades. I got pretty much all A's and maybe a B plus every once in a while through high school. And uh, I rode that wave out. I was cocky. I was academically inclined. It was easy for me. So I go to, I go to college, and I am minoring in, in English, and I'm majoring in, in film. And, and the minor in English is more because I really enjoy English, so... I'm taking these kind of classes for fun, and I take an, an American lit class that I really don't enjoy. I don't think the teacher is very serious. I don't like the, um, the material. I, I kind of have no respect for the class, but I took it, and I can't really get out of it, and I had extra units, so why not do it? And the first big test is coming up, so I kind of peruse the material again. It's, it's a lot of like multiple choice questions when, uh, uh, on the test. There's an essay portion. I'm like, pfft. This stuff is elementary, my dear Watson. Elementary. Like, I could not only crush this, like, awake, I could probably be asleep and do this, right? I go in there, and I get my butt kicked for the first time in school. I got a C minus or something. I got my first, like, below B plus in my life. And I'm like, what just happened? This is my English minor that I've been taking for fun, and I'm, like, just sucker punched. It was an incredibly humbling experience because— Here's the reality. I thought I knew the material. I, I had this 
oh, I've, I've done years of English. I'm, I'm, I, got, I got like a five on AP English stuff. I got like perfect score on my SAT essay. Like I'm good at this, right? I had believed, believed I had internalized enough of the information that when I came to the test, I could just pop it out. But what I didn't know is that I didn't know the information in a practical, living sense. My knowledge was dead on delivery. I, I, I was like, here's, here's all of the hard work, and it's empty. It's empty. This is just like what we're talking about. We cannot do this with our, our spiritual life. We cannot pretend we understand Jesus and what love is and what sacrifice is without taking this seriously. This is not a test in school. This is your spiritual, eternal life at stake. James says it best, and James, he has this whole tension throughout the whole book of faith without works is dead. doesn't matter what you know. doesn't matter what you believe. If you cannot live it out, it is dead. It's dead. It gains nobody nothing. <laughs> the reality of our lives is that we are completely dependent upon God's grace to sustain us and bless us and keep us. And what happens is we forget that, and we start feeding off the lies of our, our own narratives, and we start believing in empty things, and what happens is we spiritually wither, and we go, oh, I guess the faith, I guess God's not real. I guess Jesus really isn't who he says he was. No, it's, it's completely backwards, guys. We know, and then we need to start practicing to really know. To really know. Jesus says in verse 12, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. So the, purpose, the fruit of abiding in Christ, the, the, the true testimony that you understand who Jesus is and what he's done for you and that your life has been transformed is that you have self-sacrificial love blooming in your life, pouring out into other people's lives. That's the life hack. If you want to know if you're spiritually alive, you need to look at yourself and say, do I sacrificially love on the daily or the weekly? I should be daily as, as I'm learning. It, it, this is not my own interpretation. This is literally the words of Jesus, which is another reason I love John. I can just say what Jesus says, and y'all got to take it. <laughs> I had to take it when I read it. Jesus proves this, though. Like, the beautiful thing about it, he's not just saying this without proving it. Let's, let's think really briefly about what he had to do to prove it. Once upon a time, before he was born, Jesus was in heaven with the Father in utter glory, with Millions of angels singing his praises in perfection and in, in, in bliss and in unity. And then he comes down and he's born in a body and he's bound to time and he's hungry and thirsty and he has gas like we do and he has to walk through streets where there's poop everywhere because people didn't clean like they, they do now. And he lived a life that was really dirty. But even more than that, he condescended further. He denies himself basic human rights. You know, the Maslow pyramid of, of like human needs. Well, guess what? He denies himself the basic needs on the bottom. He's homeless for a lot of it. He's hungry. He's starving. He's not safe. He doesn't rest. He stays up constantly praying and working. So he, he condescends from heaven to earth and then he chooses the lowest station on earth. He's choosing a life that most of us would, would, would quit after a week. And then he says, not only that, but I'm going to die on a cross. A, a, a sinner's cross. He was put up there, and he was spit on, and he was laughed at, and he was mocked, and, and, and people would make fun of him. You're no king. When he was the king of kings, and he did that for you and for me 
That's what he did to prove that self-sacrificial love is the fruit that he wants in our lives because it was in his life. So in light of Jesus' sacrificial example, we have to live in such a way that that comes out in our life. Of course we're not going to be perfect. Of course we're going to be selfish from time to time. That's normal. That's why it's so difficult to be on earth. (laughs) It's like, I want to be good, but I can't always do it. But guys, we have to start. So here's the two points that we're going to end with, because I know I'm going long, but I'm just, I'm just passionate about this. You first need to triage your spiritual health. Triage, we've mentioned it a couple times over this year, but it's a medical term, which means to have a checklist, like figure out where you are at. If you don't know Jesus and you're hearing this, I can't be any clearer to you. This is your time to admit. I am dead and he is alive and I want what he has. <laughs> I want the gift he's offering me because I can't do it anymore. Every single one of us who follows Jesus admits that to him at one point. We're like, I can't do this. I'm, I'm, I'm dying. Jesus saved me. And he does. He'll listen to you. He'll answer you. Humble yourself in light of what I just said, the, how he came from heaven to earth for you and died on a cross even more so for you so that you could have a relationship with him. But for the rest of us who would call ourselves Christians like the Pharisees, We need to look into our weekly and daily lives to see where we are self-sacrificially loving others. And the the key of sacrifice is it's uncomfortable, right? Serving people out of your gifts is not uncomfortable. It's usually pretty, it feels pretty good. Oh, I'm good at that. Like, it's like, I don't know. I have a lot of fun when I play sports with the teens. Maybe someone would call that sacrifice. For me, it's just fun. I can can run around and play Frisbee for hours. That's not, even if it's hard because I'm out of shape, it's not a sacrifice. So look into your life. Look for moments of sacrificial loving and giving. If you find that most of the time you're serving or giving, it kind of feeds you a little gratification. It kind of makes you feel good. That's a big warning sign. That's a red flag. Repent and turn to the uncomfortable. Turn to selflessness. Turn to emptying yourself because that's the only way we show that we have the fruit of Christ in our lives. Serve people who make you feel uncomfortable. Love people who you would say are unlovable. And that leads us into the practical steps. So if you triage yourself and you're like, I am found wanting, and all of us are. I need pruning, and all of us need it. Learn to sacrifice the two things that Americans hate giving up more than anything. Time and money, baby! Woo! I'm about to get slapped over the face in some emails about this, but sacrifice your time and your money for other people. Woo! And not, not just the little bit you've already been given, because I've been given it too. That's easy. So how do, we, how do we sacrifice our time? Well, spend time with people you have a hard time loving. Family, friends, strangers. And the purpose of that time is not just to get to know them, which is good, but to share with them the love and encouragement that you found in Jesus. Ooh! That's difficult. Nobody wants to sign up for that. If I was like, hey guys, after church, we're going to go do this really hard thing where we're going to talk to people about loving Jesus and how encouraging it is for us to know him, you'd all be like, uh, I got lunch plans. Some of you might take me up on that and then regret it. But the reality is it's difficult. It's uncomfortable. Or here's another call. If you have a family or you're close to your family, be intentional in abiding the, in the word with your family and your kids and your social circle. Go out of your way to talk about Jesus and, and specifically in the Bible. And I guarantee you it will be uncomfortable. I guarantee you it will be a burden and it will be unfruitful because that's what sacrifice is. It starts off Oh, this is not fun. My teenage son or my, my, my tween daughter hates this. Yeah, so did I when I was that age. I'm like, mom and dad, what are you doing? 
I'm going to go play Fortnite, right? Well, we're going to talk about Jesus. Ah, I don't want to do that. Well, this is important, and Jesus wants to meet with you, and we want to figure him out so we can live a life worthy of his calling on us. Okay, you know, it's going to be hard, but we got to do it. You got to do it with your kids. You got to do it with the people that you're mentoring or sharing your life with. That's time. Now the big one, money. That green, that cabbage, that cash money. So we give, but not out of obligation. But you should give until it affects your lifestyle. What do I mean by that? Give until you're not as financially cozy or able to eat out whenever you want. Change the way your money flows. If it's taking on another ministry, it is giving. I'm not saying give it to this church necessarily, but giving, giving of your resources. Maybe you have an extra car and you find out somebody needs it and you're like, well, I, I like that car. Well, guess what? They need it. <laughs> Think, seriously consider praying and giving it to them. Give of your financial and physical resources until it's uncomfortable. Then you know you're doing what God wants. Because my parents did this, and it blew my mind. I grew up in a pretty middle-class, high, upper-middle-class wealthy family, and there was a lot of money problems, even though we had money. And then my parents did this crazy spiritual exercise where they realized we're not tithing anything, really, and we're holding on to it, and everything's slipping between our fingers like sand. And what's going on? And they were called out by, I don't remember who, but they started repenting. And they said, you know, we're going to give until it's uncomfortable. We're going to give more than we, <laughs> we need to. Like the story of Zacchaeus, who's like, I've cheated all these people. I'm going to give everything back times four. That's huge. My parents are like, we're going to give more and more until it hurts. But as soon as they did that, man, spiritual life was breathed into our family. They had margin where they didn't have before. There was, there was these amazing moments where God met them. And it's not giving so that you get God's favor. It's giving so that God can show up and teach you something. God was teaching my family to trust him. And so he showed up and he said, thank you for trusting me. I, I love you. <laughs> I gave you all this stuff for, for your benefit, for your blessing too. So, so guess what? You're trusting me. I'm going to show you that I'm, I'm still here for you. I'm here to support you no matter what. And he did. And it changed the way that I think about money. One thing that you can do that I know it's going to be difficult is you change the way, where you shop. Go to a less, less safe area. I know there's shops in Vallejo or Fairfield, and it's like, go over there. If, you have, if you're closer there, go there because it's uncomfortable. There's people that you may not be comfortable around, but guess what? There's conversations that need to be happening that aren't happening there. Conversations that only you can bring. Life that only you can bring through Jesus. Make the, make the switch. Make that jump assume God's going to keep you safe. If that's the goal, to go meet new people for Christ, do it. We need to weaponize our resources for God. We need to weaponize our cash and our time for God because, remember, they are His. He's the vine pumping this into us. He's giving us everything. And if we're not turning that out and spilling it out, we're going to rot on the branch. And that's where I'm going to end today. That's the call. It's a hard lesson. It's a beautiful lesson. It's a lesson that I am struggling to, to do every day. But it's what we're called to do. To abide in him and to show self-sacrificial love to the world. So we're going to about to enter a time of communion. So let me pray really briefly. Um, and then we'll do communion real quick. Uh, dear Jesus, thank you so much that you are patient with us. That you, you bled for us. Not because you were showing off or you wanted us to you were, like some people say, you're an egomaniac, but because you wanted us to be with you. 
you poured your life literally out on the cross for us because you were like, you're worth it. My people are on the cross who are spitting on me and hating me. You're worth it because I want you to be with me. That's what you said to us and that's what you lived out. So I just pray as we go into communion, we can think about that and let that resonate in our hearts. Thank you, Jesus.